Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, episode two, recorded on Friday, February 25th, 2022. And I'm the Bitcoin Dad and I'm here with Chris. Hey Dad, how's it going? It's going great. So we had some feedback from our first show, improbable as that seems. <laughs> the crypto coach wrote in and castigated us for not explaining terms. I said words like SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, ECB, European Central Bank, and Layer 1 blockchain, as mm. in the actual blockchain protocol, like Bitcoin. Yeah. And I didn't explain those terms. They're probably terms, you know, when you're having your daily conversations, we're, we're sitting here chatting before the show, we just kind of throw them around all the time and you just get so used to saying them that you don't think, oh, I should slow down and actually just say the full word. <laughs> and I realized that you are actually a crypto OG. Oh. Yes, because you've been, you were customer number five yeah. <laughs> at Coinbase. Yeah. So you've been in crypto longer than most people. Most. I got lucky. You know, I, I was doing a technology podcast and networked computing was a big aspect of what we talked about. And this thing came along and we just were all in on it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been through, um, definitely, definitely remember losing a good amount of Bitcoin through the Mt. Gox hack. Uh, I've been through several, several hacks. I, 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 I couldn't even, couldn't even tell you the amount of Bitcoin I've probably had lost over the years, just in those early days. We were just talking about how you live in the moment, and yeah. I can see why. Yeah. If I think about it too long, I get real sad. <laughs> real sad. So I'd like to remind all our listeners for the first time, so it might not be a reminder, that you can reach out at bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bdadpod on Twitter. <laughs> or is it bitcoindadpod on Twitter? Better double check. Just, you know, you know what you can do is put a link in the show notes, and then they don't have to remember. They can just click a link. That's the way to do it. Chris. I the, like that you're the doing the Proton Mail action, too. Look at you. Proton Mail is fantastic. Yeah. Yep. They would be a great sponsor. They would. I have, a, I have an account with Proton Mail as well. I have several, and I pay for it, even though there's a free version, because they're just so great. Yeah. Uh, so for those who don't know, Proton Mail is a Switzerland-based privacy email provider. They encrypt your email, so they can't read it. No one can read it unless you let them. And they're just pretty great. And they're offering a suite of products, I think, to compete with Google. Like oh, jeez. Like a privacy G suite. That's interesting. A P suite. Huh. Well, we shouldn't give the milk away for free. They should contact you at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com if they're interested. <laughs> I'm waiting for that email. We also had a question about staking. A listener wrote in and said, I've got some Bitcoin and I've heard a lot about staking. And it seems like it would really make sense to stake my Bitcoin and earn more. Can hmm. you tell me about this? Boy, I can see the appeal of if there was a way to stake your Bitcoin and make a passive 8% or something like that. I, I mean, I'd probably be all in on that if there was a safe way to quote unquote stake Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is not Ethereum, you know, it's, it's not quite, doesn't quite work like that. I think our listener is conflating altcoins that use a proof of stake consensus mechanism with Bitcoin, which uses a proof of work consen consensus mechanism. Right. And in those communities, say like your favorite Solana, 
staking is a huge part of the culture. It's like a big aspect to it. That was a sarcastic favorite. It was. <laughs> you so, didn't like that too much, did you? <laughs> I made a face. So proof of work is the idea that to validate, not the idea, it's a technology. And basically to create a new Bitcoin block, you want to do this because if you create a new Bitcoin block, you get to uh, take the fees from the transactions that go into that block and also, there is a block subsidy, which is the way that new Bitcoins are issued into the world. So basically, if you can find Bitcoin blocks, you get free money. Wow, sounds great. Except it's not free. So to find a Bitcoin block, Bitcoin blocks are not made so much as found. Miners take the transactions that want to be processed, and they put them together into a block that plays by the rules of the Bitcoin network. And then they need to enter a lottery to find a thing called a hash, which is compatible with this block. And a hash is a cryptographic function. And I think for the purpose of this discussion, we can just think of it as you, can f you need to run a computer thousands or perhaps millions of times to find a hash that the Bitcoin network will accept for the next block. And because blocks are issued every 10 minutes, the difficulty of finding this hash is proportional to how many computers are looking for it so that it kind of always takes 10 minutes. So if you think about Bitcoin mining and proof of work, Bitcoin miners always have to do work to get paid. So even though you might have a large Bitcoin miner, they don't really have any big advantage over a small Bitcoin miner. In fact, they might have a disadvantage because sometimes small miners can find very cheap electricity. Maybe they have a solar farm at home or something. Definitely a lower overhead cost. Sure. So why proof of stake? I mean, proof of work clearly works very well because... Bitcoin has been around for a decade and no one's been able to hack it or coerce it. So basically, the reason the proof of work narrative came along is that I think it was probably around 2015. There was this idea that proof of work is wasteful because it uses energy. And so I think the, the news article was, you know, Bitcoin uses more energy than Austria. And I think there was some outrage, like, well, that's ridiculous. You're using magical internet money, and it's using the energy of Austria. How wasteful. You're incinerating the planet, I've heard. <laughs> Bo boiling the oceans. Yeah, yeah. So let's put this in perspective. What also uses more energy than Austria? Well, the state of New York in, in the United States, should the state of New York turn off the lights and conserve energy? I don't know, maybe. Um, also, cruise ships. Cruise ships use huge amounts of energy. Um, certainly more, they certainly produce more carbon emissions than the Bitcoin network. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. they also produce a lot of raw sewage emissions. Well, and they're probably using the most expensive, most environmentally impactful type of energy where Bitcoin mining can utilize stranded energy. So there's that whole aspect of the discussion as well. Sure. It's incredibly nuanced and complicated. What I'm getting at is that 
energy consumption is a value judgment. So if you think that Bitcoin has no value, then clearly any energy it uses is a huge waste. At the same time, I would counter and say, if you think that's the case, then what you're sort of saying is that the way we allocate energy using markets with pricing is wrong, and we need an entirely new model to allocate energy. And I have trouble imagining what that would look like. So I think that you're sort of stuck with Bitcoin mining unless you want to revolutionize sort of power allocation. And the only other option I can think of is maybe a command economy. Mm. And generally, I don't think that tends to go well, if history is any lesson. The other thing that's happening, especially at an accelerated rate since China kicked out the miners during the summer of 2021, is you're seeing companies are running these Bitcoin operations. And we're talking multiple hundreds of employees, and they have marketing departments, and they understand how to interface with regulators. And so they are getting very savvy about working with stranded energy providers to give Bitcoin a green narrative. And I think it's smart because in a way, it's a real practical way to incentivize renewables, to incentivize capturing methane that would otherwise get pumped out into the atmosphere in a way that makes everyone involved rich, which is really the only way you get things done in this country. So yeah, I think if people looked at the issue, they'd find that not only does proof of work actually require work to be done for you to get that monetary reward, but proof of work can also incentivize big investments and big improvements to our power infrastructure in a way that no other technology has really pushed forward. Data centers are a good example of a power draw, but today, like a data center that Google uses or Microsoft uses, has to be located in very specific areas. But these Bitcoin mining operations, they're going out to places like really harsh conditions in North Dakota, and they're setting up Bitcoin mining operations inside used truck containers right there on the facility where there's stranded energy. And they're just mining it there 100 miles away from any other population. And then they don't even need particularly robust Internet connections like some of these large data centers do. They just need a good enough connection to get the blockchain and do the mining. And it could revolutionize North Dakota's energy system. And it's actually a net positive in terms of carbon emissions because in North Dakota, I think we're, we're talking about stranded natural gas. Yep. So if you, are, if you have a stranded natural gas well, you actually have to flare the gas because methane is something like 40 times as warming as CO2. So you generally need to burn it off to, to convert that methane into CO2 and some other byproducts. But if you get a Bitcoin miner out to your stranded gas, what they'll do is they'll actually uh, haul a combustion turbine out to produce electricity to power their Bitcoin miners. And this turbine will combust the natural gas with a much higher efficiency than flaring. And frankly, a lot of companies, to my knowledge, have not bothered to flare because EPA enforcement is pretty lax and flaring costs money. And so they're actually just letting methane seep into the atmosphere, which is incredibly bad from a global warming perspective. So, you know, you don't need to pay the EPA to enforce environmental rules if 
these companies are losing money by not efficiently burning right. the gas to mine Bitcoin. Exactly. You, you align the incentives so that they do the thing that benefits the environment long term. And by the way, some of these investments might also monetize renewables such that when we go to electric vehicles, our electric vehicles are being charged from cleaner energy sources. Like the knock-on long-term ramifications for society are a pretty positive thing. And so that's why I kind of challenge the fundamental assumptions that led us to proof of work. It's a proof of stake. Right. Right. So that's I, why the proof of stake – and I understand a lot of the – the other thing that happens with the proof of stake uh, blockchains is they really do push this environmental stuff a lot. So I think a lot of the concerns around environmental impact of proof of work actually come from the proof of stake projects. I agree. So that was kind of a long digression to get to proof of stake. So what is it? Proof of stake is the idea that – Instead of, quote unquote, wasting electricity on proof of work, we can validate blocks in a blockchain trustlessly through a different method. And in this method, what we do is we have validation nodes, which are just computers running a copy of the blockchain, and they're running software that's looking for pending transactions, and they're putting it into a block. But instead of having to consume a lot of energy to sort of fairly and trustlessly find the next block, what we'll do is, let's say you, our, our proof of stake chain is called stake chain, and these are stake coins. Delicious. Delicious. Uh, so what you can do is just take 32 of your stake coins and stake, this is getting confusing, stake them. So you, you put them into a special sort of contract, a special smart contract on this blockchain. And this contract puts the chains, the, the coins into a state where they can't be spent. So you're, you're tying up liquidity on the network. And the idea is that tying up this liquidity is sort of a, a sacrifice for you. And I, I think that's debatable doesn't really seem like such a big sacrifice. Well, I suppose if 32 stake coins is all you got, it's a bit of a sacrifice. But if you've got thousands of stake coins, maybe you're a stake coin whale, it's no big deal at all. And so the idea is that because you have these coins, you're sort of invested in the network and the ecosystem, and therefore you wouldn't do anything bad. You wouldn't censor transactions and quote unquote hurt the protocol. And I think the answer is this game theory just doesn't work at all because people have very short-term incentives. And this idea of staking assumes that every staker is staking their own coins. And that's just not the case because a lot of people hold their coins on exchanges. And if you're holding your stake coins on Coinbase, Coinbase can just go ahead and stake them. And so if you're staking other people's coins, are you really invested in the network? I'm not sure. The other issue is that staking is sort of costless, actually. So, you know, what if I, I don't know, borrowed money to get stake coins and then I had an incentive to sell them? You know, this, this gets complicated quite quickly, but most staking protocols, they have to sort of create an artificial cost for staking and they generally do this using a concept called slashing where if you're staking some coins and your node goes offline when you're supposed to be generating a block they burn your coins 
So they can somehow sort of uh, trigger a kill switch in that smart contract that you're staking in, and it just destroys those coins. So you lose money. To me, this seems really arbitrary and unfair because you probably your just internet provider went down. So do you get to sue your internet provider? I don't know. It, it seems very arbitrary to me. Yeah, or, I mean, you could also see where perhaps one large staking group could get DDoSed, go offline for a bit, and then a lot of their uh, participants get slashed. And fundamentally, even if we look beyond the pretty obvious technical shortcomings of this mechanism, what does proof of stake create? It creates our current world. If you own 51% of Ethereum in the proof of stake system, you can stake that and you will get 51% of the Ethereum for all time. So in a proof of stake system, Vitalik Buterin or his descendants, they get to be the kings and queens of Ethereum forever. That kind of seems like our current financial system where if you're born a billionaire, you're gonna die a billionaire. That's pretty much a fact. And maybe some people claw their way up, but you know, such a few number that it's really kind of statistically insignificant and kind of not worth talking about, in my opinion. Can you touch on the game theory aspect of it again? Because I think that's one of your more clear criticisms of it. And I don't know if I fully understand it, but you kind of have like, you touched on it just there briefly, but it's like that criticism, I think, fundamentally undercuts the entire idea of proof of work. Of proof of work or proof of Sorry, stake? Sorry, yeah, I keep messing it up, but proof of stake. I know it is confusing. And online, you'll see it, you'll see it abbreviated as POS, which is kind of funny. <laughs> proof of stake. You said you said the you you didn't think the under the underlying game theory actually works out. I was just wondering if you could make that more clear. Sure. So, so I think fundamentally the idea behind proof of stake or proof of work is that there has to be a real cost to validating the network. If it's costless to validate the network, we don't really have decentralized validation because think about it this way. If it was costless to produce Bitcoin blocks, I would produce infinite Bitcoin blocks right now on my computer and I would try and grab the rest of the Bitcoins. Sure. And everyone else would too. And this would break the network and Bitcoin would be worthless. Proof of stake tries to impose a cost on the validators of the network in a new way that doesn't require electricity. And it turns out that it's actually very difficult to create a sort of fair cost to produce a block. Interestingly enough, proof of work is sort of perfect. But so in proof of stake, what we have to do is we have to lock up our, our money and maybe we'll will put stake coin to rest because it's confusing. Let's just say Ethereum because yeah. they, they want to move to proof of stake. Right, that's where they're headed. With ETH. Well, now no longer called ETH2, but that's their next, one of their next big phases, right? They don't and call it ETH2? No, you didn't see that. Yeah, they're no longer calling it ETH2. They're just going to roll out in different phases. You're going to have like the executive layer and then the proof of stake layer, and they're going to combine them later on. But That sounds yeah. really confusing. It is very confusing. I've read the announcement several times, and I still kind of struggle to explain it. That is in my view, typical Ethereum. It's just right. so complicated that you feel stupid asking questions. But wouldn't you agree that Bitcoin's in the minority now with a proof-of-work system? Because if you look at all of the other altcoins, proof-of-stake is way more common. 
Like, it's like they all just went that direction. And each one of them kind of has a slightly different take on it as well. I think you're onto something there, Chris. And I will get into that. Okay. So basically, with proof of stake, we're locking up funds to stake them. And this allows us to validate blocks and to get a share of the transaction fees and the block subsidy because most blockchains don't issue all of their tokens at the beginning. They are issued over time, generally given to the validators of the network because this is a very fair and sort of efficient system to distribute funds in a quote-unquote you know, unbiased fashion. So one problem with the staking idea, especially in the case of altcoins, is um, is the initial distribution of the token fair? Because if the initial distribution of the token is fair, and then we all go and stake them, then I, you know, maybe you could have a pretty fair staking system. You mean in fair is in terms of it's evenly spread out amongst the users, the developers, any of the initial investors. Sure, because we all have the same cost basis. Okay. You know, if you let's say the developers were eating ramen for years, didn't take any you know, maybe they got some funding or something, but they then open up the protocol and, you know, actually in a staking system, if you think about it, you sort of need to pre-issue some tokens to start staking. So the problem with most altcoins is that there are very large pre-mines. The way that most altcoins work is the developers and the venture capital funds that funded them, you know, on day zero, on day negative one before day zero when they launch the chain, these entities all get a whole bunch of tokens, maybe up to 70% or 80% of the total supply. And then they get to sell them to retail and to people who have bought the marketing and get really excited about this new project. So if we think about that, that means that a bunch of people essentially got tokens for free. And so in your traditional ICO a la 2017, if you got free tokens, all you could do was sort of dump them on the retail bag holders and you made, you know, some quick money and they held a token that eventually went to zero. But now, if you can somehow maintain interest in this new proof of stake system, you can take your free tokens and you can start staking them. So this actually, in my view, breaks the proof of stake game theory because the assumption is that staking is a costly activity. But if you give me free tokens, it's not costly for me. Maybe I don't even care about the token. Maybe I, st- I want to make all my gains in dollars. So, you know, I can stake coins and engage in chicanery on the network. And another issue that is very complicated, but I'll just touch on, is that proof of stake, it's, I think it's pretty hard to actually have network rules with proof of stake. So with proof of work, if a Bitcoin miner produces a block that gives them, let's say, let's say the block subsidy right now is 6.25 Bitcoin. Let's say they produce a block that gives them a subsidy of 12.5 Bitcoin. So this was the subsidy from the previous epoch. If they produce that block and they send it out to the network, the network rejects it because the validating nodes are running Bitcoin software And they can check the block and see if it violates any consensus rules. So this actually happened. I think it was Bitmain mined a block a couple years ago 
And they used the block, sub, the block reward from a previous epoch before a halvening event when the block reward gets cut in half. And so they lost the mining reward on that block. But with proof of stake, the staking nodes essentially create, they, they create the block. Like the rule is, if you are the staking node, you get to create the block. So you can kind of rewrite the rules. Like it's, it's not clear that nodes can really check the miners anymore. Because also with proof of stake, once you stake coins, you can create, you know, you have the right to create a new block, but creating a new block is actually still costless because yes, I've staked the coins, but let's say it's my turn to create a new block. Well, actually, why don't I create a, a million new blocks? And why don't I actually say that I created every block before this block? Like, why don't I actually push a whole new history of the blockchain? This, this becomes quite complicated. Attacks like this are possible in proof of stake. And it's my understanding that a, uh, a universal solution to it has not been found. So proof of stake is very complicated. It's very experimental. And I think it's structurally unfair and very similar to the way we do business in the real world. So I don't really understand the appeal, frankly. I also, I also find the type of model that Bitcoin follows, the proof of work model, to be more democratic. I got into Bitcoin you know, months after it came out simply because I could get it on any computer and I could start participating in the network and I could start mining with my Intel CPU. And that made it accessible to anyone. If you want to stake on Ethereum, you need 32 ETH. I, I will likely never own 32 ETH in my life, right? I will probably never own 32 ETH, but I have a Bitcoin node upstairs that is participating in the consensus of the network right now. And if I wanted to go pick up an S9, you know, I, I could probably every now and then, especially if I participate in a pool, make a little bit of money off that, participate in the consensus mechanism and actually do a bit of work for the network, provide actual value. And uh, that system to me, it seems more approachable to people who are not all in already. It seems more available to the people. I think that's a really good point. So when Chris said he could get an S9, an S9 is a ASIC. It's a, it's a special Bitcoin mining machine. And at this point in Bitcoin's history, it's so difficult to find new blocks that specialty hardware is needed. So that's, you know, that's one criticism of Bitcoin that... The mining is being centralized by the need to buy specialty hardware. The counterpoint to that is, well, actually, the specialty hardware means that the miners are highly invested in Bitcoin. So if you are highly invested in Bitcoin, you kind of don't want to mess with it or do anything that hurts the network. So you can go both ways on that. Yeah, I don't really see a way to keep it safe and not have some cost to entry to have some skin in the game. That it just seems... That just seems to be critical to keeping the system safe and secure. But it seems to me that the proof of work skin in the game is much more approachable. These ASIC miners eventually go up for sale on eBay. You could pick them up used eventually. I mean, they go quick. But uh, I don't have to have some super powerful mining operation to participate. And so it still feels more available to me. 
and you don't need to mine to participate. Your node running on a Raspberry Pi is also participating in validating the rules of the network. One thing that makes Bitcoin so anti-fragile is, you know, if someone goes and tries to change the rules of the network, like some miner, Chris's node is sitting upstairs. He hasn't updated the rules on it. And when that miner finds a new block and uses some new rule, Chris's node rejects it, just throws it out. And that miner, if enough validating nodes do that, that miner just lost their block reward. And so they're disincentivized from monkeying around. Whereas with a proof of stake system, it's just not clear that miners are, sorry, stakers are de-incentivized de from trying to play games to further enrich themselves. Yeah. And the availability, the accessibility of deploying a Bitcoin node and immediately participating in that consensus network means that decentralization is accessible to average people. So you can have institutions and people with Raspberry Pis that are participating in that. And I think when you look at that, that right there is extremely critical to Bitcoin's long-term success. You could over time see that centralization. You could see some of that consensus centralized to big, powerful mining operations. But because it is available to anyone, if for some reason that became an uncomfortable, untenable position, the, communi the community could respond by firing up some Docker containers in hours. We have the ability to deploy decentralization that is accessible to people with very, very, very cheap hardware. I think that's a really good point. And we haven't really even talked about what our listener was asking about, which was, can I stake my Bitcoin? And the answer is no. You can't stake your Bitcoin. What you can do is send your Bitcoin to a third-party regulated custodian who will KYC you, and then they will take... KYC, know your customer. Oh, good catch. Know your customer. They're going to get all your information and put that in a database, which they'll share with the government. And of course, that database will eventually be hacked and be sold on the dark web. <laughs> so at that point... Of course. At that point, everyone on the dark web will know... Your much, yeah, and how much Bitcoin you got. <laughs> and your name and address. Oh, no. And un, this is a horrible idea. Unlike a, unlike a bank account, if someone comes to your house with a wrench, you'll, you, you know, they're going to get your Bitcoin. Unless, I don't know, maybe you use some of your Bitcoin to buy a larger wrench or something. <laughs> <laughs> a wrench-proof door. There you go. But, um, and then, so, so what are these? So basically, there, there are some companies. I don't think we'll name them because. Okay. They're out there. You know, they're out there. I don't want to really encourage. Well, and I don't have a lot of experience with them and I don't think you do. And don't. some of the most popular ones are not available in our state. Our state and New York state have laws that prevent them from operating here. Right. So we don't have a lot of hands on. Sure. I mean, what they're doing is not a mystery, however. So basically you've got a financial company. They're taking custody of your Bitcoin. It's not insured by the way. So if, if something happens and they go out of business or whatever, you have no insurance. So you give them your Bitcoin, and then they pay you some interest rate. In the past, these have been quite high, up to 8%. I think they're much lower now, maybe like 2% to 4%. Yeah, it's really come down for Bitcoin. So, okay, well, how, how are they doing that? I mean, this is kind of like a bank, right? How are they doing that? Well, they're doing some sort of arbitrage. And generally what they're doing is they're taking your Bitcoin, and they're giving it to a DGEN hedge fund that is 
taking your Bitcoin to the financial market casino and doing all sorts of complicated and probably risky trades. If they're clever, they stay ahead of the market and they make money and they can pay, you know, they're probably paying 16% for that Bitcoin. And then BlockFi takes the interest and they take half and they give 8% to you. I would say that you, you can get some interest on Bitcoin. You give these custodians, but you have to give up your privacy. You have to give up you know, ownership of your Bitcoin because they hold it. They hold the keys. So if they hold the keys, it's their coin. It's not yours. And that, that 4 to 8% that you're earning, in my view, that's definitely lower than the risk-adjusted rate I would take. If they were giving you 40%, I'd, I'd say, hey, that's pretty attractive. But at 40%, you know something dangerous is going on. At 8%, you might try to kid yourself that, oh, it's probably not too risky. Well, I think it probably is. Yeah, Bitcoin's a hard one to justify, too, because maybe this year will be different. But on average, the just return on a Bitcoin investment is going to be greater than 8%. Let's say it's a good year and Bitcoin experiences 100% growth, right? Well, was that 8% really worth the risk? I just don't see it. And so for me, the math has never made sense. However, I know it is quite popular. It is very, very popular. People people love it with stablecoins too. This is where you'll see some of the most attractive rates is markets going down. So I'm going to sell everything, put it into stable coins, and I'll throw it in one of these high interest accounts. And I'm going to make, you know, some crazy 13, 14, 20% interest rate on this thing while the market's down. Like that's this idea that everybody thinks they just came up with. (laughs) And the fact is that paying interest rates, it doesn't come out of thin air. There's no free lunch. Someone has to be taking a risk on that asset. And if you're putting it into an account and you don't own the keys to that account, it it could just disappear. There's that risk. But I also think a very practical, very real time risk as of like right now in 2022 is this is an area that the SEC is intensely interested in. These high yield accounts are concerning them. And I think they're going to be knocking on the doors of businesses that are doing this. They already have begun that process. And why wouldn't they want to? I mean, you look at like the savings rate in your standard institutional bank account, and it's probably not even 1%. So when these new fintech companies come along and they're offering 8%, that's going to raise a few eyebrows. So this is a particular time of regulatory scrutiny in this area. And so if this is something that interests you, maybe you've had good experience or something like that, just be aware of that for any of these US-based companies. Yes, and that takes us to our sponsor. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it. Host your own media server, control your home IoT devices with a Raspberry Pi, and get endless excuses to buy more electronic toys. The self-hosted show will give you ideas, guidance, and a fun community to experiment with running way too many computers at home. Check it out at selfhosted.show or search for the self-hosted show in your podcast app. Okay, now we get to the news. That was a long, long preamble. (laughs) You know, that one quick question kicked off a pretty serious discussion, but I'm really glad we had that. 
it's it's kind of an area that I think new people into cryptocurrency are really confused by. Sure. And I think it's easy to do something that seems sort of similar to a savings account or a bond from traditional markets, but it's not a good metaphor. It's surely something very different. And I could understand when you're coming into Bitcoin initially and you hear these terms like staking and you can see that people are staking their Solana or whatever they're staking. I could see you would just think naturally, well, Bitcoin must support that too. That must be inherently a cryptocurrency feature. Not the case. Or what am I missing out on? I think fear of missing out, FOMO, is real. And we all feel it. And here's the thing. When the bull market is in full swing, everyone's making money doing crazy, degenerate, risky stuff. And if you're just holding Bitcoin, you will feel like a stick in the mud. You really will feel like I'm like I'm so dumb not to be doing this. And then some crazy thing happens. The market drops 20%. And all of your friends who were crypto wild childs doing all this leverage, DeFi trading and whatnot, they get wrecked and you have some very raw conversations with them where you really try not to say, I told you so, but then you do and you lose a friend. Yeah. Should have listened to dad. They should have listened to dad in the first place. He told you, he did tell you. Now, I'm really glad you caught this first thing we're going to talk about because I saw this fly by in my Twitter feed. And it kind of shook me because I had all these great plans about taking all of my KYC Bitcoin, all the that's Bitcoin that has my name attached to it, and one day throwing it through a coin join and being like, ha ha, look at me, nobody can track me. But it's all been put into doubt now. It's all it's all cast into doubt. <laughs> I I wish I could reassure you. Unfortunately, I think I agree. So when Chris says that his Bitcoin is KYC'd. He means that he bought that Bitcoin from a exchange or somewhere with know your customer rules. So that entity knows Chris's name and that he bought some Bitcoin with them. Now, And really the address that I sent that Bitcoin to. Exactly. And so if they tag that address with Chris's details and then Chris makes another transaction, they can add that that next address to this list of Chris's Bitcoin addresses. So basically, Bitcoin is terrible for privacy. And that's a trade-off that Satoshi made because Bitcoin's terrible for privacy, but it's super great for a known supply. The trade-off is we can see every Bitcoin transaction, we can count them, and we can know at every moment in time how many Bitcoin there are, how many there will be, that the supply is fully transparent and auditable. The cost was privacy. So there are ways to get Bitcoin privacy. And the main one we're going to talk about today is called CoinJoin. The specific technology is called Chaumian CoinJoin, named after the cryptographer David Chaum. And essentially what a CoinJoin is, is let's say Chris and I and eight friends have some Bitcoin, and we want to get some privacy. So what we can do is we can all make a transaction at the same time where we basically take our Bitcoin, send it all into one transaction, and then the Bitcoin comes back to us. But because all of these addresses, well, technically UTXOs, unspent transaction outputs, 
you could kind of think of them as like actual coins. So if an address is like your pocket where you would put money, I can reuse an address. I can send Chris five bucks and then 10 bucks and then one penny. It always goes in that pocket. It goes into the pocket, but they're obviously sent at different times. They're different things. And so these are the UTXOs. They're like the little bits of Bitcoin. So all 10 of us can send a bunch of UTXOs into one transaction and then the UTXOs come back. Now, if you're a chainalysis con uh, company, a chain surveillance company, you've, you're tracking the entities that own these, all these UTXOs. Now, you see all these known entities sending UTXOs into a transaction. They come out and now you have to tag every transaction on the far side, sorry, every UTXO on the far side with the entity data of everyone on the near side. So basically, we're mixing our coins together and we're sharing the identity of all these coins. So you send coins in, I send coins in, UTXOs in, we all, get, we all send it into a pile and then it all gets sent back to us, the same amount of value we put in, but we get somebody else's coins. Well, it's hard to say, is it, is it yours? Is it mine? Basically, for an, obser an observer outside of this transaction, they can't mm -hmm. tell if that coin is yours or if it's mine. And so this gives us some anonymity. Okay. Now, what happened is it appears that the Ethereum DAO hacker has been identified because he used a Bitcoin coin join to try to anonymize some of his funds, and then he sent it to an exchange. And that coin join did not anonymize the Bitcoin very well. And so his identity was tied to that transaction. So oh, wow. let's get into the DAO hack later. Okay. But, okay. but basically the the coin there there are two I would say there are three main coin joins in Bitcoin, uh, implementations of coin join in Bitcoin today. And really, really there are two. One is very technical. So the very technical one is called join market. And I would say that's coin join for Arch users. So that was a joke. Um, Arch is a Linux operating system that's sort of notoriously technical. Yeah, a little more advanced users. <laughs> so the two main... Coin join implementations are called Wasabi Wallet and Samurai Wallet. Okay, and I believe in this case Wasabi Wallet was involved, right? So Wasabi Wallet, uh, I believe, was launched before Samurai Wallet. Hmm. Okay, and there actually has been talk for a long time that Wasabi has some implementation issues. Uh oh, really? Well, it really came out in the story about this uh, DAO hacker because. Essentially, the, the coin join amount that goes into the, the pool mm -hmm. or, or this shared transaction, all of the coins that go in have to be the same denomination. Because if I send in one Bitcoin and Chris sends in two Bitcoin, and then on the far side, someone gets one Bitcoin and someone gets two Bitcoin, it's pretty easy to figure out who sent in what. But if we all send in one Bitcoin, then it's not clear which one is Chris's and which one is mine. So for this hacker, he had a he had a big UTXO of I think 50 Bitcoin, and he was sending it into the Wasabi coin join pool. And so with every round of coin join, it's like Wasabi was peeling off a little like 
a little bit of Bitcoin from this, this big chunk of 50 Bitcoin and putting a little bit into each round. And this was the problem because for CoinJoin to work, your wallet has to never reuse an address from before the CoinJoin after the coin join. So if you have an address that is that is yours, it must never touch an address from after the coin join or else you've connected your address to an address after the coin join. So that address is yours too. And basically, Wasabi Wallet does this sometimes. It just does it. It apparently has some problems in the way it was implemented. And so this is really, really problematic in my view. Yeah, and people have figured out this flaw and they're using it to monitor this stuff. Yeah, because, you know, Wasabi Wallet is free software. It was, right. it was produced by this fellow who goes by Nopara on Twitter. And, you know, he just put it out there in the world. I think a lot of people have contributed to it, but he's the main contributor. If this was Linux, you know, free software, you put it out there, and if people use it, they don't use it, who cares? But the thing is, with CoinJoin, yeah, it's free software, but we're talking money, and we're talking privacy. Right. And so there are situations where financial privacy, I mean, the UN says financial privacy is a human right. So if you're providing something that is supposed to give people financial privacy, and it doesn't work... And you're taking fees. Uh, that's the other bit. Yeah. So, when, so to use the CoinJoin service, you need to pay a fee. And uh, honestly, I don't have a problem with that. No, but it does seem like it kind of implies a certain amount of responsibility. Yeah, it is It is sort of like a, a contract. You yeah. Know? You're getting a service. But basically, you kind of need to pay a fee to enter the coin join or else the chain surveillance companies would just coin join all day long and they'd know that all, you know, all of their UTXOs in the coin join. So if you joined the coin join and, you know, there were 10 participants... So there was you and nine chain surveillance participants, then you know they would know who you were on the other side of that transaction. So the the fee means that look, if chain surveillance wants to make Wasabi Wallet rich by buying a lot of coin join service, cool, go for it. You know, we'll do that all day until you have no more money. Unfortunately, Wasabi was not providing the privacy that was implied right. by the service. Right, right. Dang, this is actually one of the things on my list. I'm not kidding. I was thinking about grabbing the Wasabi wallet and taking advantage of CoinJoin. Well, I think you still can. So, okay. Oh, really? Yeah, there is another wallet called Samurai and JoinMarket too, but I'm not too familiar with JoinMarket. That's definitely a project on my list. So Samurai is uh, produced by a team called the Samurai Devs, and they actually have... So they have a Bitcoin wallet they have called the Samurai Wallet. They have a CoinJoin service, which I think is called um, the Samurai Whirlpool. Right. I have seen that. And then they, they actually also have a block explorer called OXT.me. So they'll let you – basically, they have their own kind of chain surveillance tool. So you can kind of like chain surveil yourself. Though I don't know the privacy implications of actually using their service because if you go and look up a, an address on a block explorer, well, most websites will save your IP and any cookies you have and say, hey, I think this IP owns that, that address. And so that's, that's a way the chain surveillance companies tie 
metadata into addresses to try and de-anonymize people. I don't think Samurai is doing that, but you know you need to be careful when you when you use these tools. So Samurai Wallet's pretty interesting because they have a it's similar to Wasabi in that there's a there's a coordinator. So they run a server that sort of sets up the coin join. And theoretically, if this server is compromised, they could identify all the participants. So there, I think there is some trust in this uh, in this mm-hmm. process. But but Samurai doesn't actually charge you for every coin join round. They charge you to enter the coin join pool. So how how it works is. In your Samurai wallet, there's like a coin join mode. And when you send Bitcoin into this the Samurai whirlpool where, you know, they're they're mixing all the Bitcoin, you get charged a fee for that first transaction. But then if you keep this wallet on and connected to the internet, when someone else sends Bitcoin into this pool and they pay the fee, the, the whole pool mixes again. So you actually get sort of like free mixes forever once you get in. This is a mobile app that does this? It's a mobile app. And wow, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, and uh, Samurai also has a, a home node implementation. So oh. they, they have a little uh, Docker container running Node.js that provides <laughs> some like a, like a little wallet server backend for your Samurai wallet. So you can, you can keep your wallet data local and private. They've got a lot of cool products and they give it all away for free, except you do have to pay for the coin join. They offer a Whirlpool download. They have Debs, RPMs, Mac OS binaries, Windows binaries. Yeah, I've, you know, I've tried to get the uh, Whirlpool working in a Docker container for ages, and it just is not happening for me. I'm going to have to look into this. I had no idea. This is super cool. You've given me hope again. Well, it was the Samurai devs who gave Chris hope. <laughs> so, you know, if, you're, if you've got Bitcoin and you're interested in privacy, this is a pretty cool project trying to... You can just download their app on your phone and start mixing using their coordinator, but you can also download some software from them and try to run things on your home computer. Amazing. I love open source. So, And there's real-world implications about getting this wrong because it sounds like this famous – this is like the famous DAO hack, right? Like this – is this the – are you talking like the original Ethereum DAO hack? That oh, yeah. So this, goes, this, this is uncovering sort of a nefarious character in crypto lore. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Ethereum DAO hack is is sort of, it's almost a legend at this point. I think it's like necessary crypto history, actually. So I know you were there. Do you want to tell the story? Oh, I could hardly even remember because in my eyes back then, Ethereum was such a joke. But I, I seem to, re- what my high level recollection was, is that someone got away with either a ton of Ethereum or made their own Ethereum. And what I specifically remember happening was a very intense debate and then a hard fork, I think is what I recall. Yes. So I think for most Bitcoiners who were paying attention in 2016 when this happened, the DAO hack and the subsequent Ethereum hard fork that basically reversed the DAO hack transaction, for Bitcoiners, this was a massive violation of the blockchain immutability. Right, exactly. And so a lot of Bitcoiners might seem unnecessarily hostile to Ethereum, 
And I think part of that has to do with the fact that if you believe that the value proposition of Bitcoin is that I make a transaction and after six confirmations, it's forever. Like God himself cannot roll back that transaction. The biggest, toughest government in the world can put a gun to my head. No one can roll back that transaction, even if they wanted to. That's sort of the unstoppable money aspect of Bitcoin that some people think is very valuable. I would say it's part of the value of that decentralized node network. You'd have to get consensus from the node operators. And Ethereum had enough leadership to convince everyone to upgrade their software at the same time in 2016 and roll back this hack. Okay, so what happened? Basic- By the way, which was one of the most consequential decisions of Ethereum's lifetime, right? I mean, that you can't, I don't think you can un- stress that enough. That was, to, for, for us in the Bitcoin community watching that, that was like, well, Ethereum has changed forever at this point. Yes. And I mean, it's, it's a really interesting story. So what happened was in early 2016, a company called Slock It, Slock It? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> what a what a terrible name. <laughs> uh, they, you know, sort of as a as a marketing, I think it was kind of marketing. They uh, used Ethereum's very expressive expressive programming language to create a smart contract called the DAO, and DAO is an acronym that stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It, obviously, it's also a reference to uh, Taoism, but. The idea was that the DAO would be a sort of open source hedge fund. So it's a contract on Ethereum. And if you send Ethereum into this contract, you would get like a DAO token. And the idea is that you can use this token to kind of vote on proposals that are brought before the DAO. And the DAO would be this sort of machine for venture capital and it would somehow invest in ethereum projects and just you know make infinite money i've also heard it described as an organization defined by code yes yeah so it's i think it's part of the code is law idea and and that that concept is that you know if we have an open blockchain and we can write a contract in this blockchain we don't need a court or a government to enforce law we can really write code that enforces the rules and the outcomes we want well what happened was basically slocket thought that maybe this would be a little bit popular and they'd raise 5 million dollars well they raised 9 million dollars in 2 days and at the at the end, I think after a few days, the, the DAO was worth uh, $250 million. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it, it really blew up. And it, it ended up being, I think, I want to say like 5% of all Ethereum or something. Crazy degenerates. Like Unbelievable. A, a huge amount of Ethereum. <laughs> so so it, it basically got too big too fast. And sorry to gloat, but basically... The, the next thing that happened is sort of to be expected because this is Ethereum. There was a bug in the DAO. And this allowed a hacker to start draining money out of the DAO. And so they called this, uh, basically, I think the hacker found a way to sort of change the contract to create a new DAO and to have like the old DAO send money to the new DAO. So they called it the dark DAO. Oh, my goodness. And it raises the question, if code is law, is this really a hack? Or is this just a taking advantage of the law? 
well, my position is this is not a hack at all because code is law. So by your own definition, this was an allowable outcome from this contract. So that would seem to be the implication. If, is this a hacker? I would say no. This is a really clever investor. <laughs> investor. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> what what do you want your child to grow up as? A really clever investor. Oh, like Ray Dalio? No, like the Dow hacker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it really is dystopia. <laughs> so once the the Dow hacker began draining the contract, another group of Ethereum developers, they could analyze his code on the blockchain and they saw what he was doing. So they then started draining it as well and kind of trying to block him from making more withdrawals. And this led to a debate with Vitalik Buterin, the face of Ethereum at the center of it, to, you know, maybe we should do something about this because there's a lot of Ether tied up in this and this could this could ruin Ethereum. Right. That was, I think their concern is this was going to torpedo the project at a nascent stage. And the other side of the debate was, if you do this, don't call it hard money. This is crazy. This changes everything. I just remember it being very polarized. Yeah. And what happened was Ethereum decided to hard fork. So they basically, the Ethereum developers created a new version of Ethereum that, that did not include this, this DAO transaction. And it kind of gave a lot of people their money back. At the same time, you know, if you'd been using Ethereum for your own business during this DAO hack, I don't know how that affected you, but I would be worried if I say, you know, sold something for Ethereum and then there's this rollback and the Ethereum disappears out of my account. I think that's really problematic. It doesn't seem to be money at that point. It seems to be something else, some sort of software project. Yeah, it's, it was a hard decision. I mean, you give people, you make people whole again, or do you eat this and worry about the reputation harm? Either way, there's some reputation harm, I suppose. It, it, it just seemed like a no-win scenario, really. And I think this is also part of the sort of Bitcoin maximalist criticism of Ethereum, which is if I put on my Bitcoin maxi hat. Nice hat. I know it's it's really toxic. <laughs> yeah. It's all those uh, it's all those all the studying you did on it. It's just too much. So basically the the uh, the argument is Ethereum is like QAnon. It's a big tent conspiracy because Ethereum is sunshines and rainbows. It's everything to everyone who shows up and it's all highfalutin promises. It always delivers late, if at all. It's, you know, it's based on JavaScript. Let me repeat that. It's for the programmers out there. It's based on JavaScript. For the EVM is? Yes. Solidity, the programming language of Ethereum, is based on JavaScript. Why do they do this? Well, on the pro side, there are a lot of JavaScript developers. On the con side, JavaScript is, by some accounts, the least secure programming language ever developed. And most browsers that have a secure mode will disable JavaScript in the browser because going to websites with JavaScript enabled can get your computer hacked. And Ethereum built money out of this? Well, they built the VM function. I suppose their logic is the code is contained in the VM. So it's, I, I don't know. I, that, that is alarming, I have to admit. Although I think some of the criticisms that your maxi hat touched on there, I feel like a lot of just 
Bitcoin outsiders, people who are completely removed from the crypto scene, they would heap all of those same criticisms onto Bitcoin itself. Uh, incorrectly so. But they would say it's Bitcoin is anything to anyone that they want it to be, that it's just created out of nothing and that it's, you know. I, I think that's a fair point because there is a sense that Bitcoin is, you know, many people project different beliefs onto Bitcoin. You know, there are libertarians who view Bitcoin as digital gold that they can hold in a self-sovereign way without any government picking their pocket. And then there are human rights activists who are using Bitcoin as a type of unstoppable money to, you know, in the in the end SARS pro protests in, um, in Nigeria against this very violent state-run police force that sort of sounded a bit like a criminal gang. Mm. The uh, people were protesting this 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 government group that was you know, basically committing a lot of a lot of crimes against women, and these protesters were getting their bank accounts blocked, and they started using Bitcoin. And then you know there was an amusing uh, conversation in the uh, Nigerian parliament about how well we need to shut down this Bitcoin thing. Okay, who can do that? Well, it turns out no <laughs> one can. No one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, at more and more as the financial system is used as a weapon against citizens, not just criminals, but maybe citizens that are protesting, more and more people will look at Bitcoin really seriously. That actually leads us to another news story about Canada. So, the as many people know, there have been these um, anti uh, anti sort of COVID mandate protests in Canada, and one thing that has happened is that Canada's deployed some sort of emergency anti terrorism laws against the protesters, and they're they're freezing their bank accounts. And people who've contributed to the protesters, too. So not just the protesters themselves, but people at home that maybe sent them money or crypto. Yeah, that raises the hairs on the back of my neck, because regardless of where you stand on the goals of this protest, if the Canadian government can just debank people who protest, maybe you like this government, but what about the next one? That's a pretty dangerous precedent. So... The uh, Canadian regulators have actually warned crypto exchanges not to promote self-custodial wallets because crypto exchanges are essentially banks and they're regulated entities. And if they receive a government order to freeze someone's account, they kind of have to do it. But if you buy some cryptocurrency on an exchange and then they you send it to your own wallet on your own phone or computer... And then you send it to some political cause that some government doesn't like. That government can talk to the exchange and say, hey, freeze that, that crazy person's wallet. And that the terrorist. That terrorist. Sorry. Is it just me or just it feels like terrorism just means someone who doesn't agree with you? Apparently. I think the definition's gotten very broad. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. There were some terrorists on the road today, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Definitely every day on the road. It's a terrorist riding my butt today on the way in. <laughs> so once you send to that, that, that wallet that you control, no one can block that transaction. And Canadian regulators have, have sort of found this out, and they're warning crypto exchanges to not tell people that they can self-custody their cryptocurrency because then we can't, you know, hit them with sanctions. That would be terrible, right? You know, behind the scenes, I have found the entire 
handling of this pretty pathetic. I think we mentioned it before, possibly, but the way that the Canadian government is is handing out the crypto addresses to block is via a Word document, which is just silly. And then now you see them putting um, the word out there that you can't even tell your customers that they can take that currency and put it in their own wallet. It, it doesn't seem... It almost practical. sounds like the next step is... You tell the exchange that people aren't allowed to withdraw their cryptocurrency. Oh, I don't like that idea at all. I got to be honest. I think it's coming. Hmm. I think that, and and this is something I wanted to touch on. So let's just uh, restrict this conversation to Bitcoin. If you have Bitcoin and you take that Bitcoin and you put it in your own wallet, whether on your phone or on your computer... That Bitcoin is sort of doing two things, in my view. On the one hand, maybe the price goes up, maybe it goes down. So you're getting some exposure to this investment side of Bitcoin or speculation, depending on how you define it. The other thing it's doing is it is under your control. So when you take your Bitcoin and you put it on your own wallet, as long as you don't give the keys to that wallet to someone or download a virus on your computer. And I understand this, these are things, this is scary. These are things that could happen. So you have to be careful. But if you can protect that wallet, you now have digital money that you can take with you anywhere in the world. Right now in Ukraine, there was some interesting data from some a crypto exchange in Ukraine. And it showed that I think there was a, a local spike in the price of Bitcoin because people were buying Bitcoin and, and I guess self-custodying it. You know, because if you're becoming a refugee, Bitcoin is actually an awesome thing to have. Because no unlike a bank account that you can't really take with you once you crash across a national border, you can store Bitcoin in your head. You know, you right. can you can memorize a secret yeah. that that recreates your wallet. You and don't even when you need get it. there, you can cash it out in the local currency. Sure. Wow, yeah. that's huge during times like this. It it's really so. Basically, Bitcoin gives you this kind of financial anti fragile quality where you can just take value from the real world, exchange it for Bitcoin, and now this value is in is is on the Bitcoin blockchain and you can just you can take it literally anywhere. So basically if you take custody of your Bitcoin, yes, you can financially speculate on it, though actually it's a little harder because now to sell it you have to send it back to an exchange or find another seller. But you're also getting this kind of anti-fragility quality. If you keep Bitcoin on an exchange, you know, in my view, that's basically just an investment product. Might as well buy a Bitcoin ETF because in many ways, a Bitcoin ETF, I think, would be better because exchanges have to have hot wallets because people buy and sell and take money in and out. So that's a lot of attack surface for hackers. And, and with it, a custodial ETF type product, they need to use like, quote unquote, institutional grade custody, which is generally speaking, cold wallets with very strict protocols. And I think that would be safer because if your exchange wallet gets hacked, guess what? It ain't insured. It's not a bank. Some of them offer like private insurance up to like $300 million that includes everyone on the exchange. So they got $350 million to cover every user. So you're getting a little bit of a payout if your coins go up go missing, right? I think the other thing about the exchange aspect of it is sometimes they go down. And in the scenario where Bitcoin is valuable, there are scenarios in which things are happening that are not good and these exchanges go offline. And then you cannot get access to your money. And I think that's another reason that 
really drove me because there's a lot of reasons I own Bitcoin and uh, a hedge against a financial crash is one of them. But if such an event were actually occurring in real time or something like that, do you think you'd be able to get into Coinbase? Oh, no way. No. I mean, Coinbase crashes every time there's a Super Bowl ad, every time every time <laughs> there's point. a there's a 10% price yeah. movement, Bit- yeah. Coinbase crashes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Coinbase has limits on how much you can withdraw. It's it's really just a an appendage, a membrane of the traditional financial system, in my view. I do think it is a tricky issue. And I think in the Bitcoin community, we really lean on the not your keys, not your coins thing because of hard or hard learned lessons. But there are folks like my mom who decided to start getting into Bitcoin this year as an inflation hedge. And for her, I, I don't know. My mom doesn't really practice super good data practices, right? I just, I, for my mom, I'm a little nervous and she specifically wants it as an inflation hedge. So, so far, uh, she, I don't think she's moved anything that she's purchased. That's not very much, but I don't think she's moved anything off an exchange. And I struggle with that because if I go advise her to move that to a wallet and, and then she, she loses it. It's kind of on you. Yeah. It's like if you fix someone's computer, congratulations. Every problem it will have in the future is now your fault. Totally. So true. Yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think that for people like our our mothers who who need some financial exposure – maybe just a small part of their portfolio to to this asset just to kind of balance it out and hedge things. You know, for me, I I, I almost would suggest they they just, you know, they buy a, a regulated product through their brokerage just because right. they're more likely to do it because, you know, it's right there in their brokerage account. And the institutional uh, capacity for absorbing those kinds of losses and for storing it properly has been established for forever. Yeah. I mean, some people, it's just not going to happen. They're not going to hold their own keys. They don't want to be their own bank. They they don't want to learn a new thing. And so I think for, for me, that's been a journey discovering that, you know, hey, don't shout at people who aren't interested. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. You know, for them, maybe a custodial product is the best option. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I kind of feel like... Um Hardware wallets will get better and better for consumers, and that'll also become more and more of a... I mean, they're pretty much getting there. Oh, yeah. So they're, they're just another couple of years away from being really appealing to average users. Should we pause and explain what a hardware wallet is? Oh, yeah, sure. In fact, I think that'd be I, in, um, probably essential, because if we're trying to promote that people use these things, <laughs> we should probably be clear about what they are. Yeah. The first Bitcoin wallets were software wallets that ran on personal computers. And they the first wallet is the Bitcoin Core wallet, and it came with the Bitcoin node software. And mining. You mined, you were a node, and you held your coins all in that app. Yeah. And as Bitcoin has developed, it's specialized, just like capitalism said it would. And so now there are nodes that just validate. There are mining nodes. And most nodes do not use the wallet at all. The next generation of wallets were pieces of software that were specifically designed to hold private keys. And so they, you know, they did clever things like encrypting files and trying to kind of protect you from malware that might try to steal the the secret at the core of the wallet that protects these Bitcoin. 
But the problem is that the this these were all running on personal computers, you know, laptops and things. And personal computers are their general purpose. They do a lot of things. They can run on a lot of different programs. And this means they have a very large attack surface. Literally any program you might install on your personal computer could contain a crypto malware that tries to steal your Bitcoin. And to make the odds a little better, a lot of that early Bitcoin software was first, it was Windows software at first. So a lot of us were on Windows at first, and then later on the Linux software came on. Ouch, ouch. So for our non-Linux using listeners, basically uh, Windows is full of viruses and Linux isn't. Generally, and there's just a lot more people trying to get Windows users. And you got to keep in mind, this is like the Windows XP days. So the 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 bar of OS security in Windows was much, much, much lower too. There was, the exploits were just off the charts back then. Gosh, it, this really makes me feel for those early Bitcoiners. The fact that they managed to keep any of their Bitcoin is <laughs> really yeah. impressive. Yeah. So. A hardware wallet is essentially a special purpose computer. Usually they're quite small, like a, the size of a USB. And a hardware wallet just does one thing. It's like a, a little digital fortress that protects a private key. It's designed to only open the gate to like sign a transaction or to help you generate a new address to receive Bitcoin. And that's all it does. And because it does a very few number of things, it's easier to secure and harder to attack. And it does that in conjunction with software on your computer. Right, right. So a hardware wallet, by its very nature, should not really touch the internet because the internet is full of bad actors. So the hardware wallet is, is kind of cold. It's, it's offline, and then it somehow communicates to an online device like a phone or a computer, you know, and helps you make transactions. Yeah, like generally over USB. And so the computer can connect to it instead of a network protocol with a local serial bus protocol and then authorize the transaction over that USB connection, keeping the hardware wallet off the internet, off the network. To my knowledge, I've never really heard of anyone losing Bitcoin because they used a hardware wallet. Maybe there were some hacks where people were convinced to download an update for their hardware wallet that kind of tricked them into sending Bitcoin to a new address. But is it only Bitcoin that has hardware wallets or do other chains also use hardware wallets? Well, like the Trezors and um, some of those support multiple coins. The the one that you and I like, uh, the cold card, is only Bitcoin. Still waiting for that sponsorship, <laughs> NVK. No kidding. Uh, but there are some that offer limited support. The problem is there's always more alts, and so they can only update the hardware wallet so often. So like a new a new alt will come along and become popular, and of course, it takes a year for the hardware wallets to support them. Right. So all of those speculative altcoins that people are getting rich on, yeah, they're all keeping that money on an exchange. Yeah, I mean, or like downloading one of the many wallets. That's the other problem with all these altcoins is they kind of have their own wallet too. But uh, the the end result, of course, is that if you want something that is totally secure, you're going to be limited by what these hardware wallets support. Um, that's just the reality of it. I think is it worth mentioning too that, at least as far as I know with all of them, I have not tried all of them, so I don't know for sure. So ch double check, but you could lose them. You could lose the hardware wallet. You could go up in a fire. You could you know, lose it in a boating accident. And a lot of them, if not all of them, support seed phrases to regenerate those keys. I think that's true. 
I've heard that there are some wallets that are trying to move away from seed phrases because yeah, it's yeah. it's too complicated. And to be clear, a seed phrase is basically a very clever technology that was developed by Bitcoiners that takes a private key, and a private key is a a massive number that is the basis for all encryption, whether in your bank account or in a Bitcoin wallet. And you can take a private key and you can encode it into some words. And so you can you can encode the 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 key at the center of your Bitcoin wallet into 12 or 24 words. And then you can write these down. And technically, you could write down the number. But I mean, have you ever tried to write down a 64-digit number? <laughs> that would be very right stressful because then you'd you'd have to check it and be like, wait, is that a one or a seven? Because <laughs> the difference between a one of the set at one and a seven is you have your Bitcoin and you have no Bitcoin. Right. And the thing that they do that's quite clever is all of the keys in that wallet are generated from that seed phrase. That's why it's called a seed phrase. So they're all based on that seed. So when you give the application, it has to be compatible with that application, but when you give it the seed phrase or that hardware wallet seed phrase, it's actually able then to deterministically, easy for me to say, generate the keys, regenerate the keys and give you back access to your coins. Yeah, it's it's an incredible technology. And I've I actually heard a story about a Venezuelan person who they were in Caracas and they'd managed to get a plane ticket to go, I think, to the United States. They were they were getting out of Venezuela. Just for context, Venezuela has had seriously high inflation. The economy's been destroyed. They have a very non-democratic government. And so people are leaving. I think something like 5 million Venezuelans have left in the past 10 years. So a large number of a large amount of people are leaving. But what is happening what was happening at the time according to this individual was you get to the airport with your bag and there's the army there and they go through your bag and they pat you down and they take anything of value. So like you've got US dollars in your wallet, they take them. You are trying to bring some jewelry or some bars of gold because you managed to somehow buy gold and you're going to carry it in your bag. They take that too. Or your life savings because you're going to try to start a whole new life. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, that's what people had. They were trying to carry their life savings over a border. And it turns out that you have no rights at the border. And so this is something that ha has happened throughout history to refugees, whether it was in World War II and people were fleeing Germany. They, they, had, they had to leave behind all their possessions, which were then taken by the the bad guys. And this is happening to Venezuelans. But this person, what they had done was basically turn their life savings into Bitcoin. And then they put it all in a wallet and they took those seed, the seed phrase and they constructed a memory palace. And so I think this person walked through airport security and he, they searched, they searched him and there was just like regular stuff, nothing to write home about. Just that seed phrase in his memory palace. Yeah. So I wonder what he did afterwards. Like, did he run to the bathroom and in a stall is like, write okay, down, write, write it down, down. quickly. <laughs> what was the 11th word? Right. <laughs> but you'd hope that at that point they'd come up with, with a system that was so ironclad that you could just walk around with that seed phrase in your head for the rest of your life. That's what I would hope. That's what I'm going to try to do. Life goal. Oh, uh, actually, that reminds me of uh, our feedback. The crypto coach told me that uh, you can learn that technique from them because oh. I was like, crypto coach, that sounds pretty scammy. 
And the reply was, no, I'm actually just a, a coach and I like to be paid in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it kind of makes sense. I, I, who doesn't want to be paid in Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, oh, are you going to coach me on trading cryptocurrency? No, they're going to help you build a memory palace and be your best self. Hmm. So, a memory palace. Yeah. Free plug. That's right. You write in, we'll say your name. There you go. Maybe. No promises. Shall we go on to corrections? Corrections? Oh, there are so, so many. I thought, I thought dad never gets anything wrong. I thought it was always my mistake. <laughs> not at all. That's not the kind of relationship you have with your Bitcoin dad. There you go. It's, uh, it's important to not be afraid to be wrong. And so we are wrong quite a lot. I looked into the unbanked, underbanked population in the USA and I looked at some data from the census, actually, on this subject. And it's very complicated. And it's very difficult to estimate. But it's probably less than 30 million people. Are unbanked in the U.S.? The issue is the way the census looks at it is by household. So it's hard to estimate the household size of unbanked households because... The census really only cares about banking on a household level. So if one person in the house can get a bank account, they consider that household banked. And I think this methodology can miss something because, for instance, if you have a, a couple, two people, and one goes to work and has regular income, they can have a bank account and maybe one maybe has a part-time job but does a lot of child rearing they might not be able to have a bank account. And I would say that if you can't get a bank account, you're underbanked. Even if your partner, even if someone you trust and really have a good relationship with has a bank account, that's, that's not comfortable having to rely on another person just for access to the financial system. Yeah. So we're not sure of the number, but based on the census's me methodology, I feel that the way they talk about unbanked uh, households in America probably undercounts the problem. But based on their data, it's it's certainly less than 30 million households. So do they not count the 30 million homeless that are living on the West Coast? <laughs> because oh, yeah. if you just they, go by the homeless, I oh, think yeah. there's more than 30 million people. Yeah, they but, don't. They do not count huh. the homeless. But we were, we were really just trying to get to the idea of, I think what we were trying to answer is how valuable is these new types of banking service uh, for people here in the States? Because when you look at other countries outside the West, it becomes really obvious. There's maybe 70% of the population doesn't have bank accounts. Like that was the case in El Salvador. seems like that's not quite the case here in the States and in the West in general. But it's honestly, I got to say, if 30 million is the official number, that's a pretty surprising number considering you can't really spend more than 15 minutes outside without needing a bank account. Like once you're in a city or in a town, if you want fuel, if you want food, if you want a bottle of water – groceries, you got to have cash. You can only really get so far without a bank account in modern society. So that is at a minimum 30, 30 million people that are not participating in some form of modern society. Sure. I mean, a lot of businesses, especially during the pandemic, stopped taking cash. So this just drives more and more economic activity to digital payment systems. And if it's not Bitcoin, it means you're using some centralized third party. And if you don't have a bank account, it's going to be difficult to interact with that system. And generally, if you don't have a bank account, sometimes there's, you know, some 
fintech option, but they know you don't have a bank account, so they're charging you higher fees. So it just makes every transaction more costly. It just it's diff- it's more difficult to build wealth. In my view, it's just money getting harder and harder to use. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The other thing we got wrong was the size of Russian GDP. Uh, a very angry email in Russian informed me of this. I'm I'm kidding. I looked it up myself. No one forced me to. <laughs> Russian GDP is not four trillion dollars in. 2020, it was actually nominally only $1.483 trillion. So a lot less than we thought. That's shocking. That's less than Apple. Apple's $2 trillion. That's the value of Apple. Okay. So officially Apple is bigger than Russia. The cryptocurrency market is $2 trillion when it's not tanking. Sure. I guess the question is, why has Apple not invaded? (laughs) <laughs> Maybe because they've already won. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. As of January 2022, Apple's worth three trillion. So there you go. They they're just they're lapping <laughs> Russia. Goodness. Well, I, I think GDP is sort of a flow. So that's kind of your mm. your yearly right, income. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what Apple's yearly income is, but yeah. I, I bet it's value and income are two different things. Very yeah. true. But I I mean the comparison is is interesting. Exact, probably. Yeah, it's it's still interesting to just to get the numbers out there. Yeah, I did a, at a one point I looked at uh, at the two trillion dollar market cap of crypto and compared to several countries out there, and it it is nation sized. It's absolutely the market size of a nation. Right, and that's what the the crypto speculators are doing. They're saying, okay, Bitcoin is a trillion dollars. But if it becomes more financialized, if it becomes more adopted, what is the eventual size of this market? And so crypto people compare it to the gold market, which is estimated to be $10 trillion. So if it's $10 trillion, you know, so, I mean, the question is, is Bitcoin going to be the same size or bigger than the gold market? And I think it's obviously going to be bigger, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, I've I've never been interested in buying gold from my phone, but I'll buy Bitcoin from my phone. And I think you take that across everybody who has access to smartphones and people that are like our kids' age. It's just a it's obvious. Yeah. So there there might be a bright future for for Bitcoin. Well, I guess there'd better be, because if there wasn't, we'd have to stop this podcast. And on that note, thanks for listening. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pond with the Bitcoin Dad and Chris from Jupiter Broadcasting.